For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Rashawn Evans, and you're listening to the No Nonsense Podcast. To no nonsense, a Tennessee Titans podcast, your place to go for on-demand Titans coverage that is 100% free of the nonsense that we always see in sports talk these days. I'm Luke Worsham, joined by the other two hosts of No Nonsense, Matthias Wadner and Will Lomas. We are here to recap a huge Titans win over the Indianapolis Colts that puts them into first place of the AFC South with just five games left in the 2020 season. Titans took care of business in this one, guys. I mean, there, there's really no other way to say it. This was a game that it wasn't necessarily a must-win, but they really, really needed it. it. It was a game that, like I said, put them in first place of the division. And they have finally, and we've hinted at it and teased at it, the three of us have all, all year, ever since like August we started talking about this, with just over a month left in the season, the Titans are in a position where we're not going to be having to have the conversation of, okay, well, if this team beats that team, and, well, they got to win four in a row here, and you need this team to lose two games, and, well, what? we're not going to have to have those conversations anymore. The Titans are 8-3, and three, albeit in a very close AFC. They're 8-3. and three. They're a game up in the division. The Colts don't have a tiebreaker over them at this point. Everything really is coming together nicely for this team, and I think more than just their record, I think they're getting better. I think we are watching them improve week in and week out. Yeah, I mean, this was just a completely dominant performance, uh, one that I at least didn't see coming. I didn't see them just totally blowing out uh, a division rival, which it seems like they're never able to do, but they did it here. They did it on the road. Uh, and they've really put themselves in a really good position. Like you said, the AFC is, is very tight. There are a lot of really good teams. A lot of them are, are still 7-4, and four. and then you have the Ravens who still have uh, a game to play at 6-4, and four, although they play the Steelers, but they're right there at on the outside looking in at that eighth seed. But the Titans control their own destiny, and, and, and they do so for the division title, and, and I think that's that's really important and probably something – I didn't think I was going to be able to say, especially after that Colts game from from a few weeks ago, but they've rebounded very well. Uh, they've made some adjustments. They're playing really good football, and uh, I'm excited to see how they finish this season off probably well because uh, we've seen what Derrick Henry could do uh, in the winter months, and he's really getting going. Yeah, and one of the most encouraging things uh, to me was – We've seen Arthur Smith, I think it's three games in a row, which ties a franchise high, but the opening script has been good every single game, but it seems like there's always been a lull after that, or at least 
I guess, since the Steelers game where they really was the first time they didn't get off a good start. But, you know, they kept, you know, they stuck to what was working and they got the guys involved who are making plays, which sounds easy to do, but we've seen them go away from it so many times. But uh, this was a game where they clearly knew how they wanted to attack. They did it. It didn't matter, you know, what injuries they had on the offensive line or whatever. They just decided, we know that we can pound the ball. We're going to do it. And if they ever overcommit, we're going to make them pay. And that's exactly what the MO of this team should be. So, you know, it was really the best case scenario you could have hoped for. And I think that this was, for the Titans, the game that I think we've all been waiting for. Fans of the team, reporters sort of have been waiting for what we know they're capable of when Mike Vrabel doesn't get in his own way, when the players and the talent that they have execute the game plan, that's the sort of thing they're capable of. Now, as the Titans remind us frequently, and they're absolutely right, you're not going to blow everybody out, and to expect a blowout every week is is asinine. But, you, you know, you also can't expect, or you, you, you can't accept every week being this down to the wire, can't finish, can't can't end it until the very end. You know, they were up twenty-one to nothing going into halftime, and, and it was over at that point. And and they kept the foot on the gas and kept scoring. And it was just a really impressive performance all around. As I was telling Will this earlier, my favorite stat from this game, in in very indicative of I think why they won the Titans, the Colts beginning. Once the game was fourteen to fourteen, and until the game was thirty-eight to fourteen, had seven straight drives end in zero points. Yeah, I mean, it was just fantastic to see, just because the Titans' defense has has gone through so many downs uh, this season. They've just been really inefficient, especially on third downs. They haven't gotten a lot of pressure all season, and you know. It's like teams that shouldn't put up so many points against them have. And to see them come out, even though the first couple of drives, uh, the Colts were just moving down the field with with ease. And it just seemed like one of those games where the Titans were going to have to score 30, 40 points to, to even have a chance in this one. They did end up scoring 40 points, but but they didn't need it because the defense made adjustments. They showed up. They were getting pressure. Uh, they were getting really good play from a couple of unknowns coming into the season and, and bring on Borders, who looks like a legit starting cornerback, and, and Tier Tart, who looks like a really solid defensive line piece. Uh, two guys we've kind of stumbled into just because other guys uh, weren't doing their jobs, and we've also had a couple of injuries. So to see those guys come in and make such a crucial impact on the defense, uh, it, it just speaks volumes to to that next man up mentality. Uh, that a lot of teams have and the Titans have as well. Yeah, and it didn't start out looking like it was going to be a good game on defense at all. They let them score uh, two touchdowns on their first two drives, which was an absolute nightmare because it was just the same thing that we saw last time, just wide open receivers. I think there was one that was like a 20-yard pass that was just a guy. It, it was two Colts players in the same place and no Titans defenders around. I think what happened is uh, Will Compton, which we may talk about him later, but uh, he like bit on a fake and just he kind of tripped when he was turning around and just couldn't recover fast enough. So it looked like there was a big gap. But, 
Yeah, I mean, guys like Kevin Byard. Kevin Byard got a touchdown thrown right over his head and then had a defensive pass interference call in the end zone that moved the Colts up to the one-yard line where they ran it in. So, I mean, it, it looked bad early. So before it's it's not like there was any sign that this was coming, and then all of a sudden they started making enough plays, and the Colts really just couldn't recover from really the Titans' offense more than anything. It's just every time the Titans got the ball, it felt like they were scoring a touchdown, and they ended up with thirty five points in the first half. So it felt like that, but because the offense was doing such a good job the other the Colts offense had to play perfect or else they were going to lose the game and that's exactly what happened because it, it wasn't like the Titans decided to blitz more or they decided to do anything interesting schematically it was just kind of the same old stuff the boundary corner like the stuff I hate them doing like but the Colts dropped just enough passes and the the run defense was good enough to where they couldn't get those gashing eight yard runs on the Titans and you know all that added up to a really good looking game but it's not like there was some situation where, you know, they pulled an all pro out of their back pocket and said, all right, you go out there and play and make the game. It just sort of started to work, whether it was on purpose or not. So, you know, no matter what happened, you know, good for them. But it, it is weird that the Colts just completely collapsed like that. I mean, it looked like Trey Burton was going to have one of those classic like uh, AFC South tight end plays the Titans game that we've seen in the past from the likes of, you know, Jack Doyle and Ryan Griffin and, and CJ Fedorowicz and all these guys. Getting flashbacks there. Yeah. yeah. It's a, a little hurting. And also Naheem Hines, you know, he, he's just been killing us, man, but he killed us in the first game. Uh, he got off to a good start in this one. He he was ripping off chunk gains through the air, through the ground. So, I mean, I, I was I was concerned, but the the game just completely changed. Uh, like I think it was midway through the second quarter. So, it was it was good to see the Titans be resilient and, and, and take over a game and dominate the way that that they should because their talent level says that they should. Uh, like we've talked about for so long, they have the continuity. The continuity they've been together for so long. Uh, and we've seen what this offense could do, and they finally put it all together in this one. Yeah, and I guess credit maybe Will Compton, maybe David Long, I, Rashawn Evans, some, but the linebacker, or the tight ends, and running backs didn't become a huge problem in the game. And you know, maybe it's all on Philip Rivers, maybe not, but at the very least, those guys were there. And when the ball was thrown to those people underneath, you would see those guys make kind of those splash tackles and make a play. So, you know, it wasn't like they didn't try to get those guys the ball. I don't know if they did that in the best way that they could have, but, you know, credit those guys for stepping up and stopping them because they couldn't figure it out at all the last time they played the Colts. Typically on here, we try to avoid the sports talk radio-y you know, conversation topics, but but I've seen two over the last two days on Twitter that I think are worth having. I think they're 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 legitimate conversations that aren't just fluff because we can't come up with something better to talk about. And, and I want to start with this one. So this morning, uh, Charles Robinson, who is a, an MVP voter for the NFL went on 102.5 The Game 
and said that the three players coming up most in MVP conversations around the NFL are Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, and Titans running back Derrick Henry. Uh, that was interesting to me because personally, I don't see Henry as being worth worthy of MVP based on what we've seen from him so far this year. And I believe that's the sentiment both of you two share, correct? Yeah, I mean, as much as I would love to see Henry win it and him to even get consideration for it, I just he, he's not he's not the MVP. Like there for me there's a clear front runner right now. It's Patrick Mahomes. He's playing out of his mind. He's playing like the best player in the NFL and it's not even close. Uh, and then second is, is, is Aaron Rodgers. Uh, then you could put in Henry. Sure. I get, I mean, he's having a fantastic season and it looks like, I don't know if we're going to talk about, it, but he, he might, he might actually hit 200, 2000 rushing yards this year, uh, given the matchups coming up. But I mean, he doesn't even have more total yards than Dalvin cook. He's not even technically, uh, been the best running back in the league this year. So I just, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, I guess it kind of depends on well, – let me say it like this. Mahomes should be the MVP because he's the player playing at the highest level right now. Like, I think we've talk, we talked about it before that Aaron Rodgers is putting up good numbers and all that, whatever. Like, uh, There's nobody I look at and I see they can score 50 points and a half if they just wanted to other than Mahomes. Like, He just looks like the game comes so easy to him. Even when they're struggling or even when they're down, you're just – going to assume that they're going to come back and win. And you've been, if, if you bet that, you know, for the last 30 games, you would have been right all but two times. So, you know, th- there's a reason why I get that impression from him. But if you're just trying to talk about conceptually who the most valuable player is, it's hard to argue against a player that really changes the way a defense plays to the level that Derrick Henry is. But, it's a quarterback award. Like quarterback is the most valuable position that you can see it with the money. You can, I mean, nobody should win that award other than a quarterback. But if you're talking about that, you know, offensive player of the year award they give, which is basically like the quarterback or the non quarterback, who's the best offensive player. I mean, I, I don't know how many people have a better argument for him or for, for that award than Derrick Henry. So, I guess it all depends. It's kind of like comeback player of the year. It's like the definition is so ethereal that when people try to overthink it and say like, well, what if it's not a quarterback? And if you say that, then I can kind of understand where people are coming from if they say Derrick Henry. But I mean, if you just look at the words, most valuable player, there's a reason why he got paid half a billion dollars. Yeah. And when I think, I mean, the last Non-quarterback to win MVP is my all-time favorite player, Adrian Peterson. And when I first saw this uh, tidbit about Henry being in the conversation, I immediately started my mind comparing him to Adrian Peterson. And to start with, Peterson's stats were much better. Peterson was like, what, 15 yards away from the all-time single-season record? So, So there's that. But also, if you look at but for me, MVP is about impact. It's not so much a question of would they be winning without this guy? Because I think, like, 
for just about every starting quarterback of a good team, the answer to that is no. So it goes beyond that, and it's, okay, how much is this player sort of dragging that team to victory? And when I look back on Adrian Peterson's 2012 season, that Vikings team made the playoffs with Christian Ponder at quarterback and the likes of, like, Jerome Simpson at wide receiver. And Adrian Peterson dragged that team to the playoffs because what would happen is, again, with Christian Ponder at quarterback and these very average middling receivers, every defense knew what was coming. They knew he was going to get 25 carries. And it was going to be from the I formation, and there was going to be nothing terribly creative about it. And they still couldn't do anything about it. Whereas with the Titans, not only has Henry not really done anything terribly remarkable this year outside of that Houston game. I mean, let's face it, against the Colts, he wasn't getting touched most of the time until he'd already gotten five, six yards. Um, But I don't know that he's had that level, that caliber of an impact. Because I think he gets a lot of help from the fact that his quarterback is playing at an extraordinarily high level. The fact that the Titans have excellent weapons on the perimeter in A.J. Brown and Corey Davis. Uh, and and so all that to say, I just don't see the impact that you need to win MVP. I'm all for a non-quarterback winning MVP. I was campaigning back in maybe 2015 for J.J. Watt to win MVP, which ended up being Aaron Rodgers' second MVP award. And it was because he, kind of like Adrian Peterson, dragged a terrible Houston Texans team to a divisional title. And with Henry, I just don't see that impact. No, and even in some of the wins that the Titans have had this season, Henry just hasn't really affected the game all that much. Sure, you could say that he took some attention away for for Tannehill uh, to play a good game, but but I don't know if that's the best argument. I mean, against the Jaguars, he didn't do anything. Uh, we ended up winning that game. Against the Bills, sure, he scored two rushing touchdowns, but he only had 57 yards on 19 carries, and we ended up beating the Bills 42-16. to Then the Bears game, he got completely shut down. So, like, like I'm not trying to say Henry is bad by any stretch of the imagination, but he's just... That's not an MVP. You know, the the MVP is usually a quarterback because they truly affect pretty much every single game. Every time his team wins, it's because of him. And I can't say that for Henry, but I can't say that for Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers. And, and that's why I feel like they're just a clear step above uh, in terms of the, the most valuable player award. Well, now, now we're getting to a territory where I almost disagree with y'all because I do feel like it's hard to say that Derrick Henry isn't a driving factor in the Titans winning a lot of their games just because he is sort of like the centerpiece of that entire offense. Like we've had this conversation before where we've talked about if Henry's so elite, then how come Mariota couldn't win more in the same system? Like we've we've talked about that in the past and that that holds a lot of merit, but it's hard to see Derrick Henry, especially after the first three or four weeks of the season where he was really just getting force-fed rushing attempts. But after that, like, I mean, he did just go against, what was it, the number two or number one rush defense in the NFL and the Colts and put up 100 on them both times. This is a stat I saw the other day. Uh, 
Matt Eberflus, the defensive coordinator for the Colts since 2018, there's only been one running back to put up 100 yards on him, and it's been Derrick Henry, and he's done it three times. So that's pretty impressive. Um, I don't know. My, like, my it, tune could change. It could change over these next couple of weeks, especially given yeah. some of the rushing defenses that he's going up against. My tune could change, you know? Yeah, but it, it's it's hard because – Again, I don't think that a running back should win MVP just by the strict definition of MVP. But, like, I mean, he, to me, he's very clearly the best running back in the NFL. He's not the best receiving running back in the NFL. But, like, if I have to line up a guy and I'm saying, okay, I know I'm going to give one running back in the NFL 25 carries, it's it's Henry, and then way behind is everybody else. Like no doubt, Chubb no and, doubt. And could, like, so – the conversation we're having is, is he a transcendent talent that is carrying the team to wins? No. Is he having a season that might eventually put him in the Hall of Fame? If he gets 2,000 yards, the answer is yes. So, you know, I, those are two very different conversations, and one of them has to do more with just the state of the league and how games are won now. But I, I don't know. Like, if you cut back to – 2012 and you put Derrick Henry on a team like maybe he can drag the Vikings to the, because when you look at uh Peterson's numbers it's not like he was also a super big receiving threat like it, it, he was just kind of a running back who he only I think had 12 rushing touchdowns that season so it's not like he was putting up LaDainian Tomlinson like career peak numbers but Derrick Henry is about to be the first uh, running back to lead the league in rushing yards back-to-back years. And he's doing it on an offense that is centered around getting him the ball, but not so much to where he's getting force-fed and only averaging three yards a carry either. So, you know, it, as long as we keep that in perspective with what we're saying, like we're not trying to hot-take anybody here and say that it he's a system guy or like, you know, he's not great. Like, he's great. He should be an all-pro for sure. But MVP is just – it's a position now that should only go to quarterbacks just by function of the game. I want to move into the other topic that's, and this one is probably the less intellectual and more sports talky of the two. This was something that popped up last night, I think, because uh, Will, we we kind of tweeted back and forth on this this debate of is DK Metcalf or A.J. Brown, both teammates at Ole Miss, both friends, which of those two is the better receiver right now? Um, I made the comment that I think it's probably Metcalf. I think, Will, you're, you're a A.J. Brown guy. Let's look at the stat comparison, and then uh, and then we'll have the discussion. So over the first 27 games... Of DK Metcalf's career, he has 116 catches for 1,939 yards and 16 touchdowns. AJ Brown, over the first 25 games of his career, two less, 92 catches, 1,689 yards, 16 touchdowns. So, there's there's at least those are the real stats, uh, certified real stats. Uh, what, what do we think? This is this is tough for me. I I don't know. I like 
it's really hard for me to choose one because I feel like their games are just so much different and, and they win in very different ways. But they're both so good. Like, you're, I, I really. Let, let's put it this way if you're coaching a team, which would you rather have? I'd rather have Metcalf. I think, I think he can influence defenses more because of his vertical downfield speed uh, and just his raw strength. And I think, I think he's more of a concern for defenses than AJ Brown might be in, in terms of you know maybe shifting a defense towards one side or in terms of how they they, they scheme up their defense going into the game. Yeah, like that's kind of where I am. I just think that DK Metcalf is more physical at the point of attack than AJ Brown. We we've talked about this over and over again. AJ Brown doesn't really catch it unless he's pretty open. But he's a much more explosive athlete. Now, I know that AJ Brown creates explosive plays and that's sort of his niche is the the after the catch stuff, but because DK Metcalf is such an explosive athlete and he has that 4-3 straight line speed I would be far more scared of him as a defense. Far more is probably an exaggeration. I would be more scared of him as a defensive coordinator or coach uh, or defender, for that matter, than I would be of A.J. Brown. Yeah, I mean, I I understand that argument. I don't think it's correct. Uh, just, just from the fact of, okay, so – Let's talk about what these guys are. You've got a deep threat with a big body in DK Metcalf, who is, I mean, it's incredible what he can do. Like, the, there's no doubt he is a physical freak. And then you've got AJ Brown, who's a yards after catch monster, like prolific in that area. My question is okay, let's say you don't have a Russell Wilson or a Patrick Mahomes who can throw the ball deep and deeply accurate every time. Are you still taking the same guy? Because what if you've got a quarterback who can only complete passes, I guess, accurately in a 10 to 20 yard window? Like, I think at that point you're wanting AJ Brown more because that's where he thrives. You know, you look at yards per target, AJ Brown for their careers, AJ Brown is 11.34 DK Metcalf's 10.21. So, if you look at the volume they get in the passing game, like sure DK Metcalf's numbers are higher as totals, but again, that's a volume game. Like he just gets targeted more. Uh, catch percentage: AJ Brown has a higher catch percentage than DK Metcalf does. They have the same number of touchdowns, and AJ Brown has fewer games. Yards per reception goes to AJ Brown too. So it's like all, all this stuff adds up to the more dangerous player is AJ Brown. Now, the one who is more likely to make a one-play highlight is DK Metcalf. So it, it goes back to, is your is your quarterback somebody who's a gunslinger? Like, if you say, what, like, the bottom half of the league in terms of quarterbacks, I think they would rather have A.J. Brown than they would DK Metcalf because you're saying, okay, we know that guy's going to get extra coverage or he's going to get the other team's best corner. Do I trust my quarterback to fit it in a tight enough window to where he can catch it in stride? Because if I do, then I know that he's going to win that play and probably score a touchdown. But if you can't, you know, there's nothing wrong with running crossers underneath and having A.J. Brown take a 12-yard pass 75 yards of the house. And we've seen him do that consistently throughout his career. So 
it, it's arguing whether, and I said this to somebody earlier, it's like if somebody offered you two briefcases and both of them were full, were full of a million dollars and one of them had 50s and one of them had hundreds. It's like, yeah, like the 50s are probably easier to spend, but the hundreds are lighter. Either way, you have a million dollars. So you're not looking that gift horse in the mouth, but – like I do think there's distinct cases for each based on the offense that you run and the quarterback that you have. Yeah, my other thing is I think Metcalf is still getting better, and I, I'm not saying that AJ Brown isn't, and he won't improve um, as his career goes on. But I just feel like DK Metcalf's ceiling is like I think he may be Megatron 2.0. I, I really do because. He didn't look like this last year, and this season he looks like a top-five receiver in the NFL. Like, he's uncoverable. I mean, he took Darius Slay, one of the best cornerbacks in the league, to the cleaners last night, and I don't know. He just looked fantastic, and I think his ceiling is incredibly high. Granted, he's probably playing with a slightly better quarterback. I don't know in a slightly better offense, but at least playing with Russell Wilson gives you those advantages. Uh, But I think me— Personally, person personal preference, I would take him, but I don't know. It, like I said, it, it's really tough because they're they're both so good, and they're both going to be top five, top ten receivers for the duration of their careers. Because it's not often that that receivers are this productive, this efficient, this early in their careers, and the fact that they came from the same college too is crazy. Uh, I, I don't know if we're going to see uh, two guys like this uh, for a while in the NFL. Let me ask you this. If you traded A.J. Brown to the Seahawks and D.K. Metcalf to the Titans, which one of them do you think has a better season this year? I think they both have the exact same I, season they're having right now. I think Metcalf has a better season because I think Tannehill is a really good deep ball thrower. And yeah. if it was yeah, Metcalf but- getting those deep balls instead of uh, Khalif Raymond. <laughs> I don't well, know. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't. I, I really don't have a strong argument either way. It's like in my head, I see AJ Brown as a thicker Tyler Lockett and just catching all these underneath passes and also yeah, mixing in some yeah. deep throws too. And it's like, yeah, like that. I mean, that works. Like well, you're like, talking about. It's like you said, but Matthias, you said one time AJ Brown looks like a tight end and runs like a scat back. Yes, that's exactly it. So I don't know. I've also seen him beat cornerbacks deep, like in the Raiders game last year. So I don't know if, you know, he might have that ceiling, but we well, just... Well, he also, he also did it uh, against Jonathan the Ravens in the opening play. Yeah, but he dropped it, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, well, he got passed interfered uh, in the first game. Like, that's happened twice, I think, where he's had a guy beat deep and he's gotten yeah. pass interference. Like, And then he had the crazy catch against Chicago against, I think it was Jalen Johnson, who people rave and think he's one of the top young corners or whatever. Like, I mean, it's not that he doesn't have speed. It's just that they've decided that he, you know, if he scores 75 yard touchdowns and you only have to put it in there 12 yards, why, why throw it 70 and, you know, add extra risk to it and take extra time for your pass protection. But I mean, again, like I said, I I'm fighting this fight from the side of AJ Brown is the, the guy we see the most and he's just so yeah. hard to stop and he hadn't been able to be stopped yet. So it's, you know, that's the angle I'm coming from. But you could make the argument for DK easily. And I think most people, because they played yesterday, would say that it's DK Metcalf until A.J. Brown plays again. And everybody remembers, <laughs> oh, yeah, A.J. Brown's really good. 
Yeah, but I, it's crazy that that this is like that AJ Brown is even at his level because I mean next year Metcalf might be the best receiver in the league. Like he's on that upwards trajectory, and the fact that AJ Brown is in that conversation and has a legitimate argument to say that he's better than him from you know a yards perception uh, perspective, from an efficiency perspective, even a touchdown scoring perspective, you know. That that is really really impressive, and, and I think it also points to the stupidity of a lot of general managers because they took Hollywood Brown and uh, that Patriots dude over him, whatever his name is, Nikhil Harry. Yeah, I will not stand yeah. for Nikhil Harry. Yeah, what about what about the Cardinals taking Andy Isabella over them? I Debo, mean, what is that? Debo too, right? Debo, I mean, Debo's good, good, but he's not that level. Yeah, Debo, I mean, Debo's Debo's fine. Like AJ Brown light. He's, he's uh, I mean, the lightest. Run after the catch. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they, 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 yeah. But, you know, no compare. I mean, it's just crazy. Like, we're in the midst of what is probably the best two year stretch of wide receiver talent coming out in the draft. Like, we we are seeing the next generation of wide receivers, like the next Mike Evans, Odell Beckham's, like that that string of players, like that we get every six or so years. Like, yeah, we're seeing the peak of that. And one of those guys plays for the Tennessee Titans, and he was a second round pick, and he's arguably the most dangerous player in the NFL per target. So, and it, it's crazy when you look back three years ago and you think like this team has never had a good wide receiver. And now all of a sudden they may have the best one for the next 10 years like that. Is and one fantastic. of the best number twos in the NFL, might I say, because Corey Davis is playing like a serious, definitely, seriously good player. Definitely the best two 25 or under wide receivers on the same. T- like if you're talking about young wide receiver tandems, there is nobody better than Corey Davis and A.J. Brown right now. Yeah, I mean, I think if you talk about just tandems in general without – age you'll find that in tampa florida but i do agree that if you put age in the equation it's it's advantage titans but before we go to a break i want to touch on something you just said will this whole idea of like every six or you, you mentioned every six or seven years the new crop of receivers comes in i i had this conversation with someone last year i i said this may have been two years ago. I said, I worry that the next generation of quarterbacks is not coming. Because, you know, within the next three or four years, we're going to have lost Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger. We already lost the Manning brothers. Uh, I feel like there's someone I'm, I'm forgetting about, a quarterback that retired. Um, who are the next quarterbacks? I mean, obviously Mahomes, sure. Rivers? Oh, you're saying... Yeah, who, who's the, who's next? Mahomes, of course. But we used to think that Jared Goff and Jameis Winston and Mariota and Wentz were going to be that next generation, and all four of those guys stink. So, I mean, is our next generation of press of, of quarterbacks Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and Dak Prescott? Like, mm. Herbert looks like that guy. Yeah, yeah. Bur- Burrow flashed. Uh to uh i don't know i don't want i don't want to you know put the writing on the wall yet uh he hasn't looked like that guy but we're all 
we have been very high on his potential, so he could be. Um, but yeah, and Josh Allen has has really started to improve uh, a lot more than than most of us thought. So mm-hmm. he could be one of those guys also. But like we talked about before the pod, there are a lot of young quarterbacks who are just bad. Like like you said, Wentz, Jameis, throw Darnold in there. It's just Drew Locke. Oh my goodness, man! There is. We talked about it, but but quarterback picking and, and grooming is such an inexact science that you really never know what you're going to get. And just to tie it all together, tie it all together. I think the Titans uh, are really fortunate to have a stable uh, presence at quarterback, even though he might be a little older. Uh, well, you have something to say? No, I mean I was just going to say like uh, I don't. I don't know because I keep thinking Tannehill's young because he was kept in, you know, cryogenically frozen in Miami where they weren't relevant for so long that I keep thinking like, well, maybe he's one of those guys. But it's like, no, like, I mean, so I I really don't know the answers in terms of like young quarterbacks that are going to pop. But uh, the Titans are lucky that they managed to squeeze some productive player out of that massive stretch of no good. I mean, really, it's all Andrew Luck's fault. And that's what I say about a lot of things. But this one's true. But. (laughs) Yeah, like it, it's it's wild. Well, and I guess to an extent, Locke and and Russell Wilson and and Tannehill and Matt Ryan kind of were the replacement Rivers, and, and they were they were the next generation of the Rivers, Roethlisberger, Mannings, Brady, Breeze. Yeah, unfortunately, Andrew Luck. Re- well, fortunately for Titans fans, Andrew Luck retired. Yeah. But unfortunately Yourself. for football, he retired <laughs> because yeah. man, that guy was so good. But yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to have more conversation about the Titans, including the fact that the Titans' best defensive players this season are guys that a lot of people who who aren't Titans fans have probably never heard of, which is crazy to think about. We're going to talk about that in 30 seconds. All right. Well, as you so astutely observed heading into this recording, if you were to look at the Titans' defense throughout the season, there's been a lot of just disaster on that side of the ball. I think we would all agree that the Titans' best player on defense is Jeffrey Simmons. However, when you go beyond that and look purely at production this season it is hard to evaluate this defense excuse me and i'm not having a stroke it's just hiccups it's hard to evaluate this defense without pointing out the fact that two of the more productive players have been breon borders and tierra tart and will compton and Lately, Amani Hooker, which is great because the Titans are getting contributions from in Hooker, a day three draft pick, and in the other guys, undrafteds that either uh, they stumbled upon themselves or that they purged from other teams. But it's also, on the other hand, a bit of an indictment to guys like Kevin Byard and Rashawn Evans and... Um, you know, you know, obviously, like a Jadeveon Clowney, that those guys aren't the best players. I mean, like 
it's so strange to see names that I didn't think of outside of like practice squad signings or, I mean, like I, we may have had this conversation on the podcast before that, you know, Will Compton was a guy that I, I always enjoyed watching. I think we all liked him to an extent, but he was a guy that we thought was more of a glue guy in the locker room. Like he, like Wesley Woodyard, like one of those guys where the, the value he adds to the team isn't something that you can see on the field but you can see it on the field when he's not there, when he's gone. I guess if that makes any sense, like, and you can hear it, like, just focusing on Compton right now. Like, it's cool that we're getting to see this happen in real time in stadiums without fans, because you can hear after every play, Will Compton says, you know, he'll he'll say something to the guy who made the tackle, or he'll say, you know, he he's always got some level of energy about him that's interesting and unique that wasn't there before and so that's a cool thing to see and you can understand maybe why he's making the defense play a little faster but he himself is doing a lot of the dirty work like he'll take out pulling blockers like he's the first one to the ball a lot of times he's cleaning up stuff like I mean he's doing a great job and then you've got guys like Tier Tart who Paul Kaharski ran it about before the season started about how he couldn't hit a practice sled and he and Mike Keith had a big argument about it. And then it turns out like, okay, maybe it's not super important whether you can hit a practice sled. Maybe it just matters if you're a small 300 plus pound person who is able to move people and get in the backfield because that you saw him routinely put Quentin Nelson on skates. You saw him beat him with his hand. Like it, and it wasn't like one of those situations where it's like, this guy's just fatter than the guy in front of him. And he's hard to push. Like it was, this guy's winning with technique and leverage and the finer points of the game. So that's great. And then probably, uh, well, and I should say this about Amani hooker. Like I was not an Amani hooker guy. And I think I've said this before on the podcast, maybe even last week, but he leads the team with three interceptions. And when he's on the field, you notice a difference in the speed. Like he's very clearly their best safety right now. So um, and it's something I never thought I would have said before the season started. And then the guy who we probably need to talk about the most is Breon borders who came out of absolutely nowhere, nowhere, a journeyman corner who's played. He played well when they were matching guys up stylistically. He's played well when they've picked boundaries and let guys just stay on the sides. You know, he's done well in the run game. He's tipped passes. He had his first career interception and he almost had a pick six on top of that. Uh, this past weekend, he's constantly like aggravating at the catch point and making it very difficult for guys. Like, I, I mean, he's come out of nowhere and I don't know if midget had anything to do with him, but if he did, then that's the first good thing I've seen Anthony midget do. So, you know, credit to all those guys who by all accounts should not be impact players, but who doing, who are doing everything they can to make the most of their opportunities and who look like the lifeblood of this defense. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not really a coincidence, I guess that, the defense has played much better these last two weeks in these wins uh, while Borders, Tart, Will Compton have, have gotten more playing time because they're just playing with more energy, more effort, uh, and the proverbial chip on their shoulders. And uh, like Luke said, I, I guess it is kind of an indictment on, on some of the regular starters and veterans because it kind of shows that they weren't playing with the same effort uh, and, and speed that these guys are playing with. 
And I hate I hate to single him out, but I mean Kevin Byard just he's not himself. He hasn't been yeah. himself pretty much all season. Uh, he gave up a touchdown in this game against Trey Bird, and granted, it was only one play, but we've seen it on many other plays this season where he's just not making the effort that he usually does. Uh, and we've seen it from other players as well, although one guy who who we haven't seen it with is Malcolm Butler. He always plays with, with a little edge, but there have been a lot of other players, Rashawn Evans in particular as well, who just haven't been putting in the effort that, that we grew accustomed to over the years. And to see some of these other guys come in, these role players, some of these cast-offs come in, uh, and you know, add that fuel, add that energy to the defense. It's a big reason why why we've won these last two games, and why and why the defense has been a big part of it. And I hope that some of these veterans, uh, you know, like carry on with it and, and jump on their backs and, and start playing with a little more edge. Yeah, the the buyer thing has been confusing, and I can't really get an answer from anyone you know these film people or on what's happening there very very weird but uh we do need to talk about the browns at at some point because that's the titans next opponent who when i saw that their record was eight and three i said it is because like you know they were a team that was kind of written off after like week three i mean baker mayfield has not been good this year I, i read a tweet from someone that making the point that, you know, if two years ago you had said in 2020 the Browns are going to be eight and three in in week 13, you'd be saying, "Wow, Baker must have really turned out nice." When that has not happened at all, he is not good. They're winning despite Baker Mayfield. However, when you win despite bad quarterback performances consistently, it means two things. Number one, it means you're well-coached. And number two, it means you run the football really well. Both things that I think are very true about these Cleveland Browns. Without a doubt, I I mean, that's how they want to win. They want to run the ball. They want to limit pass plays. They want to play good defense. And they just just want to grind out wins. Uh, And it's no surprise that their head coach is Kevin Stefanski, who was the offensive coordinator with the Vikings. Uh, for the past couple of seasons, he's a Mike Zimmer disciple, and we all know how the Vikings like to play. They do not like to pass the ball. They like to play solid defense, and they like to run the ball until you just can't handle it anymore. And it's kind of what the Browns do. It doesn't always work because, you know, this is a passing league. You have to be able to pass the ball in order to win. But it has worked for the Browns this season mostly because they've played a lot of bad teams. I mean, they beat the Jaguars last week. Uh, the Jaguars are terrible. They beat the Eagles the week before that by five points. The Eagles look like one of the worst teams in the league. They beat the Texans the week before that by three points, and they only scored 10 points in that game. Granted, it, it was like hurricane uh, conditions, but they're just they're just kind of a gross team, and those are the kind of teams that, that scare you because we've seen the Titans in the past get, get strung into these disgusting – uh, vomit-inducing football games like every Bills game before this year. Some of the Broncos get every single Broncos game, actually. Every Broncos game goes like that. Uh, and then the Browns game from a couple of years ago that ended 9-6. Granted, this is a different times team, but you just hate to play a team like this because 
They grind the clock. They don't want to play actual throw-it-through-the-air football. And when that happens, it just ends up being a close game and one error could be what kills you. So I hope the Titans don't fall into that. I hope they try to turn this into into a kind of a track meet, an up-tempo type of game. Because if they do, they're going to win because the Browns just don't have enough uh, through the air with Baker Mayfield and, and some of their weapons without OBJ. I just don't think they could keep up if it turns into that kind of game. Yeah, and something I was thinking about earlier today was that the Titans have kind of lost every game you can, stylistically at least. It's like they lost to a team that should be, you know, quote unquote, unquestionably better than them when they lost to the Steelers, who were still undefeated. Like they've lost a game they should have. Like, like I said, quote unquote, they lost a rivalry game with the Colts, and they lost a game they shouldn't have against the Bengals. So, as much as Mike Vrabel must hate having three losses, he does have three losses that he can point to and say, "This game is a lot like X that one over there." And like now he can say, "Like this is a lot like the Colts game. They want to run the ball on you. They don't want to throw, but when they throw, they want to be efficient. They want to get it to one guy specifically and funnel it through uh, Jarvis Landry, and that's what they're going to do." So it helps that you have these reference points, and it's hard to have a trap game against another eight and three team like. You, ne- you never want to go against a talented team this time of the year anyway. You want to have it easy so you can get fine-tune everything before you go into the playoffs. But luckily, this isn't a real trap game because, like I just said, like they're a good team and they're a team that they can point to the guys they just played against and look, look like it's nothing different than last week. So, you know, you got to stop Miles Garrett. You've got to figure out how to beat up on their pretty good offensive line, even though you don't want to bring extra guys to rush. You've got to figure out how to make sure that when Dickerson's on the field, that they don't run it down your throat and keep him on the field as long as they can. And if you can do those things, you'll be in pretty good shape. Uh, the, the really the only problem that the Titans could get into is they could coach against themselves and try to get too cute and try to rotate too many guys out. And then because you were trying to get Jeffrey Simmons you know, three plays off, you end up letting a touchdown in and you look stupid for it. So, you know, this will be a tough game because uh, it's hard to play against pro Bowl talent across the board at different positions. But like we said, like Baker Mayfield is not somebody who's going to light the world on fire. He's somebody that you can take advantage of and that good teams have taken advantage of. And people forget that as for as bad as the defense has been, they've been great in taking the ball away. And that didn't change this past week when they should have had two interceptions. And you would like to think that they can take advantage of Baker Mayfield who has turned the ball over in their big games. But yeah, like it'll be a tough game. Like there's not going to be many easy games left on the schedule. Like just because there's not a lot of time. And then you've got so many like, AFC South division games where they just want to beat you. So you can't look ahead, but yeah, I mean, this should be a fun game and this is a game that the Titans should win, but it just, it won't be easier fun to get there. You know, Matias, you bring up the comparison of other ugly games that the Titans have played in the last couple of years. You brought up Denver and you brought up uh, the, the bills. You know, I, I think what does separate this Browns team from the other, you know, ground and pound, tough wins, not really pretty teams, 
is I think they're probably a lot more talented. I mean, you know, let's take the Bills, for example, from, from 2019. Uh, major lack of explosiveness. This was before Josh Allen broke out. He was probably playing at a Baker Mayfield level back then. And the guys he was throwing the ball to was like, you know, Cole Beasley and, and uh, you know, these, you know, very replacement-level players. And they were running the ball with, like, Devin Singletary and 40-year-old Frank Gore. Whereas with the Browns, the strategy and the approach is the same, but it's just more talented players doing it. I mean, there's a big difference in Devin Singletary versus Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, two of the best running backs in the NFL. And that's just one position. Will, you brought up Jarvis Landry, who's been a consistently good player since he came into the league. Uh, and, And they've got Austin Hooper at tight end. You know, this is a more talented version of that approach. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Chubb and Hunter are two of the best 10 running backs in the league, probably. Uh, And they're really hard to stop both on the ground and when they pass on the ball. And and you add to that a really good offensive line, which features former Titans uh, right tackle Jack Conklin. They have Joel Batonio. Uh, They have really good players uh, on that offensive line. And like we said, like that's the way they want to play. They want to impose their will on you through the ground or through the screen game with their running backs in the flats and then occasionally take some shots in the middle of the field with Jarvis Landry and Austin Hooper. They could do it. The problem is that Baker just hasn't been efficient. He still makes too many mistakes. He's still not all that confident in his throws, and he misses a lot of them. But, I mean, we've seen the Titans defense give up big plays against pretty much any offense this entire season. Granted, the defense is playing better, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if the Browns do have success on offense. Uh, but if they do, I just I feel confident in the, in the Titans' offense being able to keep up, um, especially at, at home. They should be able uh, to play well and, and come out with this victory. Yeah, it, in a lot of ways, it's just like playing another version of the Titans, like you just got to be able to stop their run and get back in the backfield. And, you know, your good players have to beat their good players. So, you know, nothing revolutionary. I don't don't know what more I can say on this just because we're at a point now where we've seen these teams for what this will be week 13. Like, I mean, we, we pretty much know what these teams are. And at this point, we've seen the Titans enough to know that if they could just put up points like we know they can nothing else really matters they've been able to score their way out of trouble so many times this season and uh without Denzel Ward on the other side like they'll have a big advantage and I think Ronnie Harrison's also out I think we said so like with those injuries like maybe Miles Garrett coming back is sort of negated a little bit but at the end of the day this Titans team has shown that they can beat good defenses they can beat them on the ground they can beat them in the air like at this point, there's no excuses for the Titans to lose any game just because they have to start considering themselves one of the top five teams in the NFL just based on how they're scoring, and they have to hope that the defense can just get a couple of stops along the way. The, the one thing I'll say, you, you mentioned Miles Garrett. The, the Titans cannot possibly let Garrett line up one-on-one against Questenberry and Dennis Kelly. Um just on every snap, just one-on-one. You cannot do that because, as we've seen before, he has the potential to wreck games. 
in the same way that that Joey Bosa completely wrecked the the Bills offense uh, this past Sunday. He had three sacks, like eight tackles or something like that. He was insane. And Miles Garrett has that potential, and he's done it before. Uh, and, and given the injuries that the that the Titans are dealing with on the offensive line, uh, and the fact that Questenberry, even though he's played well, he's still you know a third string tackle. You have to take that into account, and I don't think you can just go into this game thinking that that everything will be fine if you just leave him on an island uh, against one of the best pass rushers in the NFL. I expect them to run it at Garrett often. I mean, I expect that to be a big part of the game plan is run it and then play action away from that. And just you, you've got to try to make him understand that he can't just like they did with TJ Watt, which is, you know, they're going to try to run the ball there. It, the difference is that they don't have the rest of the Steelers defense, which is why this will work better. But you can't let those guys think, OK, I can rush up field and there's no punishment for it. It's what the Titans did to J.J. Watt when they played the Texans like if you've got a guy who's not going to do his job because he wants to get sacks and he wants to get headlines, cool, like abuse that. And, you know, that's what I think the Titans will do. And that may not be a tight end chip every time, but it may be a tight end chip this play. And then a Corey Davis crack, and then they try to pitch it around him. Or And some of that stuff may not work, but it's the fact that you give him so many different looks that he can't just get a free release off the line and know what's coming and know how to, you know, set that up for failure. So as long as the Titans stick to their game plan and don't basically play unsound football, it should be okay. But I mean, I, I say that knowing full well that Miles Garrett would have probably been the defensive player of the year, if not for missing two weeks with COVID. It's time for Stop the Nonsense. And as I, uh, as I tweeted, I believe yesterday, uh, there's no shortage of material for this week. Who would like to begin? I'll go first. Uh, so mine this week is uh, something I've, I've wanted to talk about for a while, which is I've been, I've been hesitant and tried to you know keep my powder dry, Coach Mack style, but... For so long, I've wanted to just get so excited and brag about how the Titans didn't go after Tom Brady and how it was such a stupid decision that everybody was trying to make, or such a stupid idea that people were trying to make that Tom Brady was the right guy and that he was going to win championships, blah, 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 blah. Well, we finally got to the point now where he's had a couple of pretty terrible games back-to-back. They, I think they're 1-3 in, in their last four games. Uh, and the one team they beat was like the Giants or something. It was it was not a good performance. And the shine is coming off the Bucks quick. And now we're at the point where Bruce Arians and Tom Brady are basically arguing about who's got control of the offense, and they're both playing hot potato with a responsibility. Uh, it came out in uh, a Mike Silver uh, hit on NFL Network. Like I'm not I'm not going to quote it word for word, but it's basically uh, I'll paraphrase it and say that Mike Silver, I'm assuming from uh, Tom Brady's side, or sorry, I'm assuming from uh, Bruce Arian's side is saying, well, actually, Tom Brady's the one making these calls, so all the stupid deep passes that I've been known for my entire career, that's not me. Tom Brady is choosing to do that. And then Tom Brady has come out and basically said, like, you you know, he's kind of made his peace and all that kind of stuff. But it's clear that 
Bruce Arians knows that he has a reputation for only wanting to throw the deep ball. And Tom Brady is throwing the deep ball more now than he has any point in the last three or four years. And there's a clear connection there. And he's trying to distance himself from that because it's not working. But it all goes back to the same point that we tried to make in March is that you can't just put Tom Brady in a system and assume he'll work. You can't put him in the Titans because he can't run the play action and boot off of it. You can't put him in the in Tampa Bay because he can't hit those deep passes. So this is, I guess, a retrospective and a look back at all those other nonsensical takes that happened to where everybody that just assumed because Tom Brady was the greatest of all time, that you could put him in any system and it would work. That is very clearly not true. And whether they dig themselves out of this hole or not, it doesn't make that point true. We're seeing now why it was a dangerous idea to assume that whatever offense he went to was just going to magically get better and fit his fit him, even though he had schematic limitations. And you know, and now that we see that, I hope everybody can appreciate just how hard it was for John Robinson and Mike Vrabel to make the correct decisions that they did, despite all the like all the backlash they got for it, which they did get backlash for it. But despite all that, like they made the right decision. So that that's kind of where I am. I mean, I remember when we had this discussion on here that Tom Brady just didn't make a whole lot of sense for the Titans because the offense that they run is, is polar opposite to his strength. And that's not an attack on Tom Brady. It's just, I mean, it's, it's what it is. I mean, it would be like having Derrick Henry in an offense designed with a lot of swing passes and screens to the running back. Like, it's just not what he's built for. Yeah, 100%. I can go next. Um, I've got a, a, I've actually got two. First of all, one of mine is the, the, the weird reaction out there to uh, Vanderbilt having Sarah Fuller kick for them in their game at Missouri this past weekend. Um, and I think there's a lot of weird reactions on both sides. Here's what we know. They, and this is according to the university and, and their athletic director, they had no choice but to do this. Uh, the AD uh, said that uh, they tried out some some people like from the team that claimed to have kicking experience and she said that was a disaster. Uh, Vanderbilt doesn't have a men's soccer team, so their hand was, in a way, forced, and they went to Sarah Fuller, which I think is, is great, and I think it's a really cool thing. Um, so there's some weird stuff happening on both sides of this, though. I, I think one weird reaction that is happening is the misogynistic reaction of, you know, these people that, this is a man sport and you need to get off the field. I mean, I, I, I've seen some very sexist, you know, misogynistic crap on Twitter over the last few days, you know, along the lines of, you know, like make me a sandwich, get back in the kitchen. And that's just awful. Like, don't say that stuff. It's, it's, it's demeaning. And it also has no, no place here. This was not a publicity stunt, uh, though certainly publicity has come from it. Uh, they really didn't have a choice, so let's calm down on that front. But also, I think it's cool that, that a, a woman played in the football game, 
However, what I don't necessarily understand is those who are – and Vanderbilt, to their credit, has not really done this. Um, in fact, they have not done this. But that this is like in some way a victory for the good brand of feminism. And I just don't really know that it is because like Hillary Clinton – of all people, is even, you know, tweeting about how great it is that Sarah Fuller played in a game. And, you know, when, you know, someone as famous and and, and well-known as Hillary Clinton is, is tweeting about something, it's a big deal. But, like, it's you, you do need the caveat that Sarah Fuller did not really earn this opportunity, and she was the last choice. And, again, I think the correct reaction to this situation is right in the middle. I think this was really cool. I thought it was awesome. I was telling friends about it. I'm like, man, this is really cool. It's interesting. But I don't know that it, it's – I mean, it's monumental in the sense that she's the first woman to play uh, Power 5 college football. But I don't know that it's some huge victory. But I also don't agree with the people on the other side who are freaking out about it and saying that this was some terrible development. Am I off base with that? No, and – uh, most of it is just either veiled or open sexism. You know, that's just the world we live in. Uh, I would also love to see all of these people who are criticizing uh, the de- the decision to let her kick and her performances. I would love to see them actually go out there and, and try to boot yeah. a kickoff or, or kick a field goal. Because I think, I don't think it would go very well for them, to be honest. I, I will say this. The people who were saying... What, they're basically only going to have 10 people on the field when she goes out to kick. My response to that is, if I'm a kick returner, I am far more scared of 6'2 Sarah Fuller than I am of Rodrigo Blankenship. Yeah. yeah. And I how mean, often does the kicker even factor into the play? Yeah, like, if you never... Well, I won't say never because sometimes Justin Tucker does it but like you very very rarely see a kicker go up and make a really skilled move and look anything like a normal football player they're not they're specialists that's why they're called specialists yeah so I don't know like I, I don't I don't know that she's like set setting any new sort of standard or anything like that like I hope it gets more you know women involved in collegiate you know football like and hopefully the nfl one day or whatever like i've I've seen enough bad kicking with the titans over the last couple of years to accept any help that we can possibly get so you know i i don't have any issue with that like uh, i don't know it, it's it's a different look and you have to understand that she's playing a sport she's never played before like it's you know it's not a one-to-one translation so you know give her give her time like yeah it, I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes. Like, we'll see what happens if there's ever a player who spends the whole like off season with a team, like weight and conditioning, like really gets coached and like understands what they're supposed to do, and then plays a full season. But I mean, it's it's a good barrier to break. Like, now let's see, you know, where we can go from here. And then my other stop the nonsense quickly is Mike Vrabel throughout this season in his media availabilities. Ugh. He has been objectively very, very bad. And while I do not expect him to come into these uh, Zoom press conferences jumping for joy that he has the privilege of talking to the media, I'd also like him to you know answer the questions. 
I mean, his all-time low performance was on Monday when he came out and and shut down two very reasonable questions from one from Teron Davenport and and one from Joe Rexroad who who asked something about like the process of scripting plays for an opening drive and Vrabel went on this 3-minute rant about like one week I suck according to the media and then the next week Arthur Smith sucks and and we just got to be more consistent and he started talking about like Malcolm Butler and press coverage I don't I don't know dude just answer the questions please but and, and even when he does answer the questions he gives he's given terrible answers this year and it's not even like a coy Bill Belichick kind of thing it's like he's not even trying like he's just been gone, and and, and I know, I, you know, people that listen to this may be thinking, oh, well, well, that's a little, you know, his job is not to cater to the media, yeah, but like you, you can at least help him out, and 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 I'm not asking for him to like, you know, call people out or make some kind of bold declarations, just answer the questions that are being asked, especially if it's a very very simple question to answer. I mean, we, we were joking about starting to sell T-shirts that say "Gotta play better, gotta coach better," because he like if you ask him about virtually anything, that is his response, and it has not been good, and it's been uncharacteristic. Because in, in years past, he's been great, and and it's gotten to where I have very little motivation to attend his press conferences. Which I guess if that's his goal, he's succeeding, but. I have not been impressed by him in those this year, and it's very disappointing to me. I've told you guys those press conferences for coaches are just an absolute waste of time, especially Mike Vrabel's. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I just I feel bad for the people who have to, like you guys who have to write about this stuff and, and actually need uh, quotes and good answers to actually you know help uh, help your content, help put it in the content. Uh, so I feel bad for you guys. I do remember when I was a big hotshot writer still a few years ago. Uh, in Vrabel's first year, I had written an article because he was being so vague and annoying about injuries that I had just had enough. <laughs> this was in training camp. He hadn't even he hadn't even coached a real game yet, and I was like already sick of it. And I had people in my mentions saying, you, you don't know anything. He doesn't have to tell you anything. And I'm just like, Okay, but like, just don't be condescending about it, you know. But he's still the same guy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's just who he is. Anyway, I'll do mine. Uh, this top of nonsense was referred by Eldon English, friend of the pod. Uh, so Mike Herndon, Mike Miracles, friend of the other friend of the pod, who's <laughs> actually been on the pod. Uh, he tweeted updating the records for the 2018 NFL head coaching class, including playoffs. Mike Vrabel tops this list at 28-18 and 18 with a .608 winning percentage. Then you have Matt Nagy, Frank Reich, John Gruden, Matt Patricia, Pat Shermer, and Steve Wilkes all under him. Wow, man, those last three are brutal. But, okay, anyway, so this guy at Bengals Junkie, who I don't even know how he saw this tweet. Uh, he must follow Mike Miracles for some reason. He is a... Los Angeles Clippers fan and a diehard Cincinnati Bengals fan. He quote tweets this. I don't know why he's quote tweeting this, this because the Bengals, there isn't even a Bengals coach on this list. But anyway, he says, wins are not a stat, period. Only thing they count toward is the playoffs. 
I'm sorry. I couldn't get there. I know that's important, but a head coach's record in their first three three years doesn't matter. Either only list the third year or don't use it. So, so he says wins are not a stat. It's the only stat that matters, actually. But we're not gonna we're not gonna get into that. He, but then he says the only thing they count towards is the playoffs. So he's contradicting himself because they do matter. They do matter in order to make the playoffs. So they are a stat. Uh, and then he says this arbitrary three-year number that you ha- that has to qualify you for your record to count. So if you did well in your first two seasons, sorry, you're 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 crap out of luck. You, they just don't count apparently in this guy's mind. And I just don't understand this thought process. He had another he had another tweet in this thread. My, Mike responded to him. He was like, "So your thesis is that winning isn't important for head coaches? Interesting." And he responds, you think Kyle Shanahan's record in his first two years mattered? No, he's a good coach. That's my point. Read the whole thing. Don't judge a head coach on their record in their first two years when using stats like this. If they aren't employed by year three, then teams already rid themselves of the problem. Okay, but like if you can't even get to your third year, then you suck. So that so it still matters. Like I don't understand what this guy's point was. In all of this, and it's just so logically flawed, and it was truly nonsense. Well, that's what we're here for, is to call you out when you are logically flawed. That's the majority of our brand. Um, That's going to do it for us for this week. We will be back next week to recap the Browns game and look ahead. Until then, for Willa Matias, I'm Luke reminding you and everyone else in the sports world to stop the nonsense. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.